Hello, welcome to Deep Dive from the Japan Times. I'm Tu Hung Ha, culture critic for the paper, filling in this week for Sean McKenna. Today we're talking about the new film from Hayao Miyazaki. I've seen Hayao Miyazaki's latest animation film. I've just arrived to see the new Miyazaki flick, which is hard to even imagine. If a new Miyazaki is news to you, do not stress. It's been 10 years since the beloved animator put out a new film, and he's retired on multiple occasions. And this movie ran especially under the radar. We don't know much about what the film is about because there was no pre-release promotion. I didn't know what to expect going in, and I loved it, yeah. The film is titled Kimitachi wa Ikiruka in Japanese, which translates to How Do You Live? But the official English title is The Boy and the Heron. The film began showing in Japan on July 14th, and it's scheduled to come out in North America at some point this year. We do know that its first screening outside of Japan will be at the Toronto International Film Festival on the opening night, September 7th. In today's episode, I'll talk to Japan Times film critic Matt Schley about how we felt about the film and what this unexpected gift means for fans, Studio Ghibli, and Miyazaki's legacy. The episode does contain themes and character archetypes. We tried as best we could to make it as spoiler-free as possible. But if you want to go into the film clean, kind of like we did here in Japan, we'll give you a heads up when you might want to skip ahead. All right, hope you enjoy the show. Matt Schley, welcome to Deep Dive. Thank you for having me. So Matt, this is a huge, huge deal. It is a huge, huge <laughs> deal. I think you put it best the other day when we were talking and you called it the G7 for kind of Japan-based culture writers. I mean, Hayao Miyazaki, probably Japan's most famous living director, um, hasn't made a film in 10 years, announced 10 years ago he wasn't going to make any more, then came out of retirement for this one. So... Yes, it is hard to overstate what a big deal this is. It's big. It's a big one. And I think it was extra big because we didn't know what was going to be in it, right? That's right. So a really interesting PR strategy or lack of PR strategy on the part of Ghibli and kind of their president slash PR mastermind, Toshio Suzuki. Um, this time they decided to go without a trailer, go without TV spots, all we had was a poster and the name of the film, and that's it. I can't even remember what movies were like before YouTube trailers. God, me neither. Um, but according to Toshio Suzuki, that's kind of the way he wanted to do it. Bring back a time when all you had was, you know, maybe a tagline, a poster, things like that. And you would kind of fill in the rest with your imagination. Yeah, Anika Osaki Exum. She's one of our reporters. She was at the theater on opening day getting people's thoughts. I talked to one person that said she was really glad for the lack of promotion because she really wanted to go into it without any knowledge of what it is to be able to enjoy that even more than usual. Yeah, and I think that a Miyazaki or a Ghibli film for people in our generation brings up a lot of nostalgia, right? Like, this is a big deal for us as two people. Certainly. I mean, you know, for me, getting into Japanese animation when I was a young teen, um, you know, I'm of the generation where Pokemon was on TV, Dragon Ball, mm -hmm. Sailor Moon, like that. Those were the days. <laughs> and, you know, um, my dad took me to see Princess Mononoke in the theater, um, featuring the voices of Billy Bob Thornton <laughs> and Gillian Anderson. Um, yeah, <laughs> it was quite a cast. But, um, you know, it uh, blew my mind when mm. I saw that film. Um, it was just something I had never seen and seeing a anime movie on the big screen like that, having it be as good a film as it was, that kind of set me on the path to 
write about anime and come live here in Japan wow. eventually. Yeah. It's not an exaggeration to say that, that Miyazaki's had a huge influence on my life. But what was it like for you as a kid watching Miyazaki movies? Yeah, I mean, I was going to say that I think for a lot of people who are kind of into Japan, I think that Ghibli movies might be one of their initial ways in. It might be different now, but at least in our generation. I am a huge fan. I am a film studies major in college. I did my thesis on Miyazaki. I don't know any Japanese, though. But you still saw it. <laughs> so I, I still saw it, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I honestly loved it. Like, even though I didn't know what they were saying, I loved it. I grew up in suburban America in the 90s and it was not cool to be Asian. I mean, it's pretty cool now. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> but um, it was very uncool at the time. And I think for me, anime really represented like something I could feel proud of, even though mm. I'm not from Japan in mm. any way. I'm from, my family's from Vietnam. Mm. And also like they had girl heroes. I mean, I was really into Sailor Moon and, um, and all the Ghibli movies had female heroes and protagonists. And that was a very big deal. This might be the first one that I've seen at the time of release in the theater. Um, and that also felt like a really big deal mm. um, because, as you said, there's probably not going to be another one. Absolutely. I mean, I remember 10 years ago when um, what was supposed to be his final film, The mm. Wind Rises, came out. I think that was the first time that I saw a Ghibli film, you know, in Japan, mm. kind of not too far from where it was made. And I remember that just being a huge experience for me, um, as it was this time as well. All right, that's enough foreplay. What did we think about this movie? <laughs> what did we think? <laughs> well, um, I think we're both in um, in agreement that this is a pretty darn good motion picture. What do you think? We liked it. We liked it. <laughs> we we liked, liked this it. movie. Um, you know, I my experience seeing this, I went and saw it the day it came out, the morning it came out, bright and early at 8 a.m. Well, it's 7.45 a.m. here in Shinjuku. First showing, right? right? First showing, yeah. Thoughts on my mind this morning. Number one, I wonder how many people are going to come see this thing. This was not press screened as Mm. going with their um, strategy of not doing any pre-promotion. Meaning you had to see with all the norms. With all the normies. Yeah, yeah. No, you know, (laughs) um, it's something I kind of miss actually being a a critic because you go and see it with a bunch of jaded people. Usually (laughs) Uh, this time I saw it with with um, film fans. And they gave it a kind of rousing, um, uh, not standing ovation, but they clapped at the end of the oh, film, which, unusual. as you know, is, yeah. is rare in Japan. Yeah. And, you know, the very end of the film, the final credit in the film, it says, you know, written and directed by Hayao Miyazaki. Mm. And I got to admit, when that name came up, it wasn't just my feelings on this film, but his entire career and what he's meant to me. I have to admit, there was a few tears shed. And I kind of got up to leave the theater. Um, I turned around and there was a guy sitting behind me who had a very kind of similar look. <laughs> um, he was a bit misty. And we kind of looked at each other and kind of gave each other a nod, which was a really nice moment. Just kind of, hey, yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, I'm getting misty right now. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, I, I did have a similar uh, hmm. experience. Like um, I didn't see it the first day. But a couple of days after in Miyazaki Prefecture, no relation. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, we all sat there, mm. as you know, is is normal in Japan to sit through all the credits mm. and um, but extra, I think, for this one. And uh, there was a kind of a hush mm. of reverence. Kind of a reverence. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I think that um, something that you wrote about in your review that I very much felt was that seeing this film in the theater, I really felt like I was in the hands of a master. Mm. And 
Um, personally, I don't think it was his best film, but even his like worst film is still one billion times better than anything else. Are in you the saying theater this is right his now. worst film? <laughs> no, I'm not <laughs> saying it's his worst. I don't know what I would. Okay. Another topic for another time. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, it's just in the details with Miyazaki, mm. right? Like um, the way a character steps in the mud, mm. the way their, you know, their shoe hits the mud. Or there's an entire, like, a joke or a whole narrative about someone in the way their hair reacts to the wind or their clothes react to someone brushing up against them. Um, I mean, it's just, like, a delight. Just these tiny moments, a couple frames that say a whole world. I think that's absolutely right. And it's it doesn't just look amazing. It also advances the story, right? Mm. I mean, depending um, on who steps in the mud, as you said, um, you can see how how much they weigh or mm. if they walk with a confident stride right. or if they're cautious, yeah. you know. Nice. Um, I mean, I felt very, very similar. There's a there's an amazing scene that doesn't really have anything to do with the fantasy or or it's not – you might consider it in another film to be a very kind of plain scene. Uh, where it's just two people stepping into a carriage, mm. right, or a rickshaw-looking thing, um, and it kind of shifts with the weight of the kind of heavier character and then the lighter character. And it's just, um, you can tell, and you can see this whenever you watch a documentary about Miyazaki, how carefully he looks at the world and then how he translates that motion of our real world into a two-dimensional uh, medium. It's just incredible. So we loved it. But, you know, I struggled a little bit with the plot. Um, Matt, can you try to can you try to sum that up for us? Um, if I could sum it up in a pithy way. Yeah, I would say something like, uh, well, there's a young boy um, in the midst of uh, World War Two, and he is pulled into kind of a fantasy realm in order to save his new stepmother. What do you think? You did that really easily. <laughs> I, I, After I saw the film, I tried with my friend to summarize the film. It took us 25 minutes. The wizard, con the old wizard, con right. like you see him like from afar and he's like, oh no, I'm missing a bunch of stuff. He's, you know, first the... Oh, it's the, the water. The mom? So I admit that, and I don't disagree with you, that the film, um, there's a lot going on. <laughs> Let's say it that way. And especially, um, you know, the way that the film is set up, basically, you've got the first 30 minutes or so, which are quite grounded in reality, mm. let's say. And then um, after about that, he enters his kind of fantasy world. Um, I don't know about you. For me, I really like those kind of more grounded kind of um, uh, realistic elements. Mm. Yeah, Not no, so I, was, I was waiting <laughs> to take off. I was like, let's get to the fantasy. I'm really into the, you know, the girls in the fantasy worlds um, sure. part of Miyazaki. <laughs> sure, sure. I mean, um, I think, like you said, once you go into the fantasy part, you've kind of got what might be criticized as kind of a, a greatest hits of Miyazaki, mm. right? He's kind of checking off some of those boxes. So, you know, all these bits kind of come at you quite quickly. They don't entirely feel cohesive. But I do feel like all those scenes on an individual level were a lot of fun. I agree with that checklist, greatest hits feel. You know, he's really known for each of his films creating these really distinct, unique worlds. And this one felt just a bit like self-referential, mm -hmm. tribute to himself, <laughs> homage <laughs> to himself. Um, and I don't mind the ego, actually, but I just think that normally his films don't like break the fourth wall and just feel really self-contained. Mm. Um, and uh, I'm thinking specifically, I was a bit annoyed um, 
there were these very, very cute, like, uh, Wada Wada spirits. They looked like kind of Kirby-esque. They did look Kirby-esque, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I was, it felt a bit like they were trying to recreate the cuteness of the Kodama spirits in Princess Mononoke. Mm. Those are the ones in the forest mm. with the shaking heads. And it kind of felt like pre-designed for later merch and like uh, desktop backgrounds. Um, the cynical take. <laughs> I felt, yeah, and I just felt overall I was getting a bit of sense of deja vu. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't disagree with that either. Um, I think another way to interpret that, it would be that, you know, this is a director who's had the same kind of visual and thematic obsessions throughout his career for decades. And this maybe being his final film, just based on his age and, and the you know, how long these films take to make. Why reinvent the wheel at this point? Mm. Um, I think it makes sense for him to go to back to his kind of favorites in a way and kind of sum up his career up to this point. The Boy and the Heron did feel more final to me than, say, his last, supposed last film, which was The Wind Rises. I think so, too. But at the same time, it does have a lot of the same themes as that film or same kind of obsessions again. Uh, we've got, for example, um, the airplane thing, right? Yes, he loves airplanes. He does love his airplanes. He loves to depict war. We start this film right away with like the world kind of ending, um, and it's it's World War II. We also right away get this super familiar theme of a strong mother figure, but who's missing or lost. Yep. And we've got a, a kind of bumbling dad <laughs> of Miyasaki staple for sure. Yeah. They're well-meaning. But bumbling, but well-meaning. They, yeah. they, don't, they don't help that much, yeah. these dads. Yeah. Um, you know, we've also got a main character who is a child, mm -hmm. which is another huge Miyazaki thing. Um, we've got a kid who, you know starts off a kind of selfish, irresponsible, and by the end kind of grows into his own, maybe a bit faster than would be the case for a lot of children. Um, you see that in a lot of his films, right? You've got Kiki's Delivery Service, where Kiki moves to the big city, has to grow up quickly, spirited away. Um, Chihiro is brought into this um, world where she's got to kind of work for a living, um, grow up really quickly. And this film, we have Mahito, who is a boy, which is a bit unique for a Miyazaki film. But again, he starts off as kind of immature and over the course of the film kind of learns to grow up. Right. A lot of his characters have to like sign contracts <laughs> <laughs> at a young age, yep. commit themselves to a working life. Yeah. Well, you know, this reflects Miyazaki's own life in a mm. way. Um, he was born uh, in the years of World War II. Um, he had a family that was pretty well off compared to a lot of families. They were able to kind of escape the firebombings of Tokyo by moving to Utsunomiya, to the north of Tokyo, because of their uh, financial well-being. Um, they helped build fighter planes, which led to Miyazaki's both obsession with planes, but also his very ambiguous feeling about them. You know, his family is profiting off other people's suffering. And... We talked about how a lot of his films have kids that have to grow up really quickly. That has a lot to do with his childhood. Um, his mother, who was a big influence on him, had tuberculosis, and she was kind of bedridden for many, many years, which meant that Miyazaki, like his characters, had to grow up really quick, kind of be the substitute mother for his siblings. Right. And now, listeners, if you're worried about spoilers, here's where you might want to skip ahead. About four minutes to 20 minutes and 20 seconds. 
And this movie, we also had this wizard, which is not a new thing. Um, he reminded me mm. a lot of Hal from mm. Howl's Moving Castle. He's kind of um, depressed and like isolated in his little tower. Um, this wizard felt older. Mm-hmm. Did you did you think it was Miyazaki? <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like you did. Um, I think that's certainly one way to interpret it. Absolutely. You know, he's kind of a creator like Miyazaki. He's kind of this kind of lonely, suffering kind of uh, creative spirit, as you mentioned. I also think this character has the really important role of kind of explicating the title of the film, which in Japanese is Kimitachi wa Doikiruka, which is how do you live? How will you live? I felt like this is kind of Miyazaki asking his grandchild is one theory that, that's mm. out there, um, asking the audience in general, especially the young people. Hey, it's my time to go. Um, how are you guys going to make the world a better place from here on out? Yeah, I think this film reflected his own feelings of mortality um, more than I think his previous films. It felt more abstract. It felt more existential. That could just be my own age um, <laughs> coming through. <laughs> um, but I think that, you know, a lot of his films, as we've discussed, are about childhood and sometimes a little bit about parenting. But mm-hmm. this one felt like there was also this uh, major storyline of being a grandparent or mm-hmm. um Almost like he already sees himself as an ancestor, leaving behind a legacy. Absolutely. Matt, you introduced me to this great book by Susan Napier called Miyazaki World. And um, she talks about late Miyazaki. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, you know, what characterizes the later um, films mm. uh, by Miyazaki. And what she argues is that we can see a kind of movement away from the fantasy and magic of his middle works mm-hmm. and um, towards a kind of reality. So in Ponyo, which came out in 2008, um, at the very end of the film, Ponyo gives up her magic and lives in the real world. And in 2013, um, The Wind Rises, that's a film with almost no fantasy in it at all. Mm-hmm. It takes place in the real world completely. And I think that um, Mahito is grappling with these two things, you could say. Um, on the one hand, um, the world of storytelling, creation, fantasy, and magic. And on the other hand, um, living in the real world. Yeah, it was interesting, wasn't it? You've got these kind of very distinctive sections of the film, one of them being in the reality of kind of World War II era Japan. And then we've also got the fantasy section, more of a return to middle Miyazaki, perhaps. Mm. But yeah, kind of him grappling with those two worlds, kind of late Miyazaki and middle Miyazaki fighting for for domination. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. But I I think kind of um, we've got this choice without spoiling anything. Um, Mahito's got to make a choice at the end of the film, right? And um, while the choice he makes is clear, Mm -hmm. um, the way that we, the audience, interpret that choice, I think, is a lot more open to interpretation. I don't know. What did you feel about that? Yeah, I think I agree. Like, he he definitely makes a choice, but the symbolism is a little bit um, up for debate, I would say. Absolutely. You know, the weekend after this in Japan, the new Mission Impossible film came out, mm-hmm. um, which I went and saw. It was it was fine. Mm-hmm. Um, Tom Cruise jumped off high stuff, which is <laughs> what you want from those films. He's still got it. He's still got it. Um, and, and that's impressive. But, you know, I left the theater with my buddies and we talked about the film for about five minutes. That was really cool when he jumped off that thing. Um, but that was about it. Mm. And in comparison... The discussions that I've had about The Boy and the Heron have lasted now for weeks, Mm. right? With everybody that I meet who's seen the film, we've talked a long time about what the ending means. And it's really fun to be a part of a film that feels like it's creating discussion. I should say that you should definitely 
I said, uh, it's um, uh, another masterpiece from probably the greatest uh, animation filmmaker ever. Uh, it's a um, piece uh, that is kind of hard to interpret. Uh, it's a story about life and death, obviously, and uh, it's about how you would come to terms with uneasiness of existence. That's neuroscientist and writer Ken Mogi talking about the movie on his YouTube channel. So I still have a lot of questions, um, not just about the plot, but yeah, also about the symbols. I've been hearing a lot of people say that the movie is so dense with illusions that they need to rewatch it. Um, and it seems like maybe they are. The movie is doing really well, right? Yes, the film's been doing really well so far, despite the total lack of promotion. On the first weekend, it grossed 2.14 billion yen, which is about $15 million. That was a long four-day weekend. But um, in comparison, we look at Spirited Away, which is so far Ghibli's highest grossing film of all time. And it actually had a slightly better weekend or a slightly better first four days than that film. Right. That was also a long weekend, right? It also included a national holiday. Yeah. So it's doing rather well. And we have to remember that Spirited Away had a very extensive marketing campaign. Mm. So as we record this, we've also got the... Uh, second weekend results. So, so far, the film over two weeks has made 3.6 billion yen. Um, for kind of some kind of comparison, if people don't know how much 3.6 <laughs> billion yen means. Tell us, Matt. Um, Spirited Away, uh, which I just mentioned, is Japan's second highest grossing film of all time that made a total of 31 billion yen over its entire run. So we're a tenth of the way there already. Right. And that's with no promotion. But that's not the first time that this has happened, right? That's right. So actually, back in the um, not-so-distant past, um, when the film Howl's Moving Castle came out, mm. they did a very similar thing with that film and did very little promotion. Why? Well, Princess Mononoke and Spirited Away, both films did extremely well. And apparently, Miyazaki was a little bit miffed that um, people were attributing the success of those films not to the quality of the films themselves, <laughs> but to Toshio Suzuki's amazing promotional <laughs> techniques. Um, so when they released Howl's Moving Castle, they they kind of put the brakes on on marketing. That film did incredibly well as well. So it turns out people just want to see Miyazaki movies. Do you think there's ever going to be another Miyazaki? What does that mean? <laughs> what do I mean? I think when people ask that question, and they've been asking it for at least a decade mm -hmm. because he's already announced he's retiring once, right? Um, I think they're asking two or three different things. One of those is about his studio, Studio Ghibli, whether they're going to survive without him, right? That remains a huge question mark, in, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. The studio was founded in the 80s to specifically to make films from Miyazaki, Isao Takahata, who passed away a few years ago, and with also the brain of Toshio Suzuki, who we've been talking about. Those three guys, that secret sauce, um, I'm not sure there's ever going to be a combination exactly like that. And um, on a little bit more of a cynical note, let's keep in mind that Studio Ghibli is in a really um, unique financial position where they can go take seven years to go off and make a movie and not have sponsors kind of saying, hey, when's it coming out? When's it coming out? So... They've tried to um, several times to pass the baton on to the next generation of filmmakers. There have been some real tragedies with one of those directors passing away in his 40s. Um, 
you've got Goro Miyazaki, who's the son of Hayao Miyazaki. Goro. Goro. Um, I think <laughs> he's a little bit underrated. Yeah. <laughs> you think he's underrated? Well, I think everybody made fun of him so much for that first film. He's mm. made a couple since then, which haven't been as bad. Um, in fact, I would say as not bad. as bad. I mean, um, I think his his second film was actually pretty good, but they haven't done as well at the box office, obviously. Mm. Um, and so the future of Studio Ghibli, um, they've announced that they're working on a new film. Very little details about it so far. They just opened Ghibli Park down in Nagoya. Um, so we'll see what happens with them. That That is unclear. But what about Makoto Shinkai, the Your Name guy? Makoto Shinkai, yeah, he of Your Name most famously, but also Weathering With You and Suzume. These films that have done really, really well at the box office and, and critically. Um in these conversations, you also get Mamoru Hosoda, who did uh, The Boy and the Beast and Bell, which also did really well. They are extremely technically gifted directors, and their films look incredible. But are these guys a duplicate of Miyazaki? Obviously not, but they bring their own worldview and, and their own techniques to the medium, obviously. Yeah, I've seen the Shinkai films. I think they're very beautiful. There is a specific style that has started to become familiar for me that I, you know, I feel something. Not quite um, the next Miyazaki in my mind, but I think, you know, I'm kind of, I'm optimistic that, you know, humans are endlessly creative. Um, I think the times will eventually give rise to a new anime genius that we can um, get all excited about together. And I hope you're right. And I <laughs> and um, I think the reason that we are so excited about anime here in Japan is part of Miyazaki's legacy, right? Mm, yeah. If you look around at, at countries across the world and you look at the top box office films, it's usually a Marvel film, a Tom Cruise film, something like that. You look at Japan and in the same weekend where the Avengers is on the top of every other country in the world, uh, instead, here it's the latest uh, Detective Conan film or the latest Ghibli film or the latest Shinkai film or something. So Japan is this weird kind of um, niche where instead of those films, it's it's animation that always wins the day. Um, and part of that is thanks to decades of successful Studio Ghibli and Hayao Miyazaki films. So we talked about Makoto Shinkai. We talked about Mamoru Hosoda. These are two creators on a very long list of people who've been inspired to create animation, partially by Studio Ghibli and Hayao Miyazaki. Right. And, you know, in other places, animation is often seen as something for kids, something to be taken lightly. Mm, yeah, it's really an art form here. It is. And, you know, it rules the box office. So I think cementing the cultural status of animation here in Japan, that might be the ultimate legacy of Hayao Miyazaki. Thanks very much to Matt for coming on Deep Dive. You can find links to Matt's writing on the film in the show notes. And Sean McKenna's here to help us drop up the show. Hi, Sean. Hi, too. Have you seen The Boy and the Heron? I have not. I'm saving my money for Barbie. You sound like me at age eight. <laughs> <laughs> Sean, what else is happening in the news this week? Well, elsewhere in the Japan Times, last month saw the second highest number of scorching days, or moshobi, those are days above 35 degrees Celsius for July since the weather agency began keeping such records. 
the heat is expected to persist throughout August and September. And continuing with the weather, high winds hit power lines in Okinawa Prefecture and knocked out electricity to more than 200,000 households on Wednesday morning as the powerful and slow-moving typhoon Kanun neared Japan's southwestern island, threatening torrential rains. At the time of this podcast recording, hundreds of thousands of people in the prefecture were advised to evacuate as the storm moved northwest at a speed of 10 kilometers per hour. Deep Dive is produced by Dave Cortez. Our interns are Christoph Luang and Himari Shimans. The closing theme is by Oscar Boyd, and the theme music was written by Japanese musician 4L. I'm Sean McKenna. And I'm Tu Hung Ha. Thanks for listening, and Potsukare-sama. Potsukare-sama. Potsukare-sama.